Amen. All right, well, we're there in Joshua chapter number 22, and that is going to be our text for tonight, but I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, uh, to quickly turn back with me to the book of Numbers. So keep your place right there in Joshua 22. That's our text for tonight. And go back a couple of books to the book of Numbers. You, if you go backwards, you go past the book of Deuteronomy into the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter number 32. And of course, we are continuing tonight our series entitled The Seven Habits of highly effective Christians. And we've been looking at these seven habits of how to be effective in your life. And of course, the word effective means adequate to accomplish a purpose, producing the intended or expected results. And that's what we want in our lives. We want to be able to accomplish our purpose to produce the expected results. And we've been looking at these habits and uh, looking at them through uh, the scripture and seeing how we can apply them in our lives. And if you remember, we started with a sermon called Inside Out, and we learned about the fact that change, if we're going to change, if we're going to grow, if we're going to become better, we're going to have to do it from the inside out. And then we looked at habit number one, which was to be proactive, to take the initiative, to put in the energy or the effort. And habit two was to begin with the end in mind, to live a life of purpose where you're living on purpose because there is a result, there is an end you want to accomplish. Then we looked at habit number three, which was to put first things first. And so it's not enough to just live a life of purpose, but we must live a life of priorities where we're putting the things that are most important, making sure we're getting those done first. And I didn't really talk about this in in the sermons up to this point, but the first three habits are what we would consider private victories, how to have private victory in your life. Personally, you need to be proactive. You need to live your life with purpose, with the end in mind. You must put first things first. Then the next three habits deal with public victory. And that's why we talked about last time, habit number four, to think win-win in every relationship that we enter into, that we engage into, that we want to esteem others better than ourselves. And we want to, uh, of course, be happy when God blesses others. Tonight, we're going to continue with this idea of public uh, uh, victories. And we're going to look at habit number five. And habit number five is this, and I'd encourage you to write this down. It is to seek first to understand, then to be understood. To seek first to understand, then to be understood. And, and I want to, uh, the reason that we went to Joshua 22 is because in Joshua 22, uh, there is this story which I, I often refer to as the great misunderstanding. There's a huge misunderstanding that happens in Joshua 22. And we're going to look at that and apply it to habit five. But before we do that, I want to just give you the context of that story so you understand it. And you find the context in Numbers 32. So if you look at Numbers chapter 32 and verse number one, the Bible says this. Now, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw that the land of Jazer, the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and to Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, Ataroth and Dibon and Jazer and Nimrah and Heshbon and Elielah and Shebam and Nebo and Beam, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel, is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. So I want you to understand that in Numbers, we have uh, rewinded back. In, in Joshua, of course, 
We are uh, in a time where Joshua is towards the end of his life, what we read there in Joshua 22, and the children of Israel have already conquered the land, and Joshua is now an old man. Uh, but in Numbers 32, we have Moses is uh, still in power, and they have not yet entered into the Promised Land. They have not crossed the Jordan River. They are still on the other side of the Jordan River. But if you remember, during the years of wandering, God allowed them to have certain victories on that side of Jordan. And they had actually acquired some land on that side of Jordan before they'd actually crossed into the promised land. This is what we're reading about, where the children of Reuben, the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, they go to Moses and they are expressing the fact that the country that uh, is on this side of Jordan, notice verse 4 again, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle, and thy servants have cattle. They said, this is a good land for cattle, and we have a lot of cattle. Notice verse 5, wherefore said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession, and bring us not over Jordan. So what they're basically asking is they're saying, we want to get take our possession on this side. We don't want to uh, cross the Jordan and take a possession on the other side. This is a good land for us, so we want to uh, have our inheritance on this side of Jordan. Skip down to verse number 16, um, and notice what the agreement that, that is given to them. Notice verse 16. And they came near unto him and said, we will build, this is the, the, the two tribes going to Moses. They said, we will build sheepfolds here for our cattle and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will go ready armed before the children of Israel until we have brought them unto their place and our little ones shall dwell in the fen cities because of the inhabitants of the land we will not return unto our houses until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on yonder side Jordan or forward because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side Jordan eastward. So notice that they said, we are going to uh, build cities, we're going to uh, uh, build uh, sheepfolds for our cattle, and we're going to leave our family on this side, and then we're going to go over, the men are going to go over on, uh, on to the other side, and we're going to help you conquer the land, but when that is done, then we're going to return back to this side of Jordan, because this is where our inheritance is going to be. Notice verse 20. And Moses said unto them, If you will do this thing, if you will go on before the Lord to war, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Lord until he had driven out his enemies from before him, and the land be subdued before the Lord, then afterward ye shall return and be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. So I want you to notice that they made this deal with Moses, where Moses said, that's fine, if you go and help the rest of the children of Israel conquer the land on the other side, then this will be your inheritance. When the war is done, when the land has been conquered, you can come back on this side and take a possession. I want you to understand that's the context to the conflict that we're going to see in Joshua chapter 22. In fact, if you would, turn back to Joshua 22. You're there in Numbers. If you have Deuteronomy, then the book of Joshua. And let me read to you uh, just uh, an excerpt from the book here, because tonight we're talking about habit number five, which is seek to understand, then to be understood. And what we have is a conflict that happens in Joshua 22. It's this big misunderstanding because of the fact that there was not good communication. There were people who were not communicating well with each other, and they were not seeking to understand before they were seeking to be understood. They were 
were making their decisions based off of, of assumptions, based off of information that they had, but they should have tried to listen and gather and tried to understand what was happening uh, in this situation. This is something that happens a lot in our relationships, uh, whether it's in your marriage or with your children or with your pastor. Oftentimes, there may be conflicts that happen, and the conflicts happen as a result of a lack of proper communication. Let me just read to you uh, from the book here under a section called Empathetic Listening. And here's what he says. He says, Seek first to understand involves a a very deep shift in paradigm. We typically seek first to be understood. Most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And I'm sure you've met people like that where you're uh, having a conversation with them and you know you're not, they're not even listening to what you're saying. They're just waiting for you to be done so that they can give you their response. Uh, let me give, read to you another uh, from another section of the book. He says this, Communication is the most important skill in life. We spend most of our waking hours communicating. But consider this. You spent years learning how to read and write, years learning how to speak, but what about listening? What training or education have you had that enables you to listen so that you really deeply understand another human being uh, from that individual's own frame of reference. And that's what we're going to learn about tonight. I'm going to give you uh, some thoughts in regards to seeking to understand. And I believe that this will help you in every area of your life. Look, communication truly is one of the greatest skills in life. If you think about the fact that uh, we often refer to one of the biggest, most important things that you and I do as New Testament Christians is to go soul winning and to preach the gospel. But if you think about it, what do we do when we're out soul winning? We're communicating the gospel with other individuals. And I believe that one of the reasons that so many soul winners are ineffective is not because they're not saying the right things, but they haven't learned to listen for the right things. They're not really listening, and they're not trying to understand uh, the other individual. And here's what I'm telling you. This, if you get this down, it'll help you with your teenagers. It'll help you in your marriage. It'll help you at work. It'll help you in every area of life. It'll help you in church life. It'll help you in every area that you have to engage with other human beings and communicate with other human beings because we often have not received training on how to listen. So tonight we're going to learn about seek first to understand, then to be understood. Now, we saw there in Numbers 32 that the children of Israel, um, uh, the the two and a half tribes of, of Israel made a deal with Moses that once the land had been conquered, they would go back to the other side, the east side of Jordan, and they would inherit the land on that side. Now, in Joshua 22, we're fast-forwarding to many years later. The land has been conquered, and they are now getting ready to go back. These two and a half tribes are getting ready to go back to possess their land. And I want you to notice that in Joshua 22, they receive a commendation from Joshua. Joshua is happy with them, and he gives them this commendation. Notice, he commends them, first of all, for their commitment. Look at verse 1. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So it's two and a half tribes. It's the Reubenites, the Gadites, and then the tribe of Manasseh, half of it inherited on the west side of Jordan, and the other half inherited on the east side 
of Jordan. And by the way, this is why we have a documentary called Beyond Jordan. And we talk about the fact that the only part of the Holy Land is on the west side of Jordan, but there was a part of the Promised Land that was on the east side of Jordan. And this is what we're talking about, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Notice that Joshua commends them for their commitment. Look at verse 2. And said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. He said, you did everything that you said you were going to do. And he says, I want to commend you for your commitment. But notice, not only does he commend them for their commitment, he also commends them for their companionship. Look at verse 3. He says, ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day. He said, you were companions with us in our journeys, and you were companions with us in our battles. I want you to notice, not only does he commend them for their companionship, he also commends them for their consistency. Look at the last part of verse 3. He says, he says this, these many days until this day, he says, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. He said, you have been consistent all of these days. You have done what you committed to do. And then he talks to them about their compensation. And I'm just kind of walking through this, just helping you understand the passage. He speaks to this tribe the two and a half tribes, about their compensation. Look at verse 4. He says, And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren, as he promised them. Therefore, now return ye, and get you unto your tents, and unto the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side, Jordan. So part of their compensation was their destination, the fact that they were going to get this land. Then he gives them an admonition. Look at verse 5. But take diligent heed to do the commandments of the law, which Moses the servant of the Lord charged you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cleave unto him and to serve him with all your hearts and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went unto their tents. Then he gives them their reparation. He gives them their pay. Notice verse 7. He says, Now to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possessions in Bashan, but unto the other half uh, thereof uh, gave Joshua among their brethren on this side Jordan westward. And when Joshua sent them away also unto their tents, then he blessed them. And he spake unto them, saying, Return, notice, with much riches unto your tent, and with very much cattle, and silver, and gold, and brass, and with iron, and with very much raiment. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So we see that these two and a half tribes, they're leaving, all right? They're going to cross the Jordan unto their inherited land and they receive a commendation from Joshua and they receive a compensation uh, for the work that they have done. But I want you to notice that we also see here a construction and they begin to construct this altar. Notice verse 9. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh return. Remember, they've been on the other side of Jordan away from their families, away from their children, for years helping the other tribes conquer the land. They've been on what you and I would call a deployment today, you know, in military terms, where they went somewhere away from their families in order to fight these battles, and now they are returning. But I want you to notice, on their way back, on their way back to their families, they decide to stop 
and to build an altar. I want you to notice the priority of this altar. Because it says there in verse 9, And the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go unto the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, wherefore they were possessed, according to the word of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. Notice verse 10. And when they came unto the borders of Jordan, that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar. And I want you to notice that this was a priority for them. And this must have been a huge priority in order for them to stop at the border and to build this altar. And again, keep in mind, these people have been gone from their families for years. They've been on the other side of Jordan now for years helping uh, conquer this land while their wives and their children were on the other side of Jordan. They've been gone. And I remember when I was in the Air Force, I, I had a deployment to Qatar. I was in the Air Force, so I deployed for four months at that time that were the deployments. And I remember after four months, I was ready to get home. I was ready to get back to my wife and to my kids. And, you know, honestly, there was not anything that I would have wanted to do. It's not like when I got back home and I got off the plane, you know, I was thinking like, hey, you know, I need to stop by the bank and I need to stop by, you know, a drive through And let me no, the, 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 the one thing I want to do is just get back home to my family. I want to see my family. I want to be with my family. And these men have been out at war for years now. They've been given the approval by Joshua, their commander-in-chief. He's given them their commendation. He's given them their compensation. He's told them, you can go home. And they decide to go home. But before they actually get home, they stop at the border and they decide to build an altar. We see the priority of the altar. But I want you to notice, not only I want the priority of the altar, but I want you to notice the purpose of the altar. Look at the last part of verse 10. And built there an altar by Jordan. Notice, a great altar to see to. I want you to notice the purpose of this altar was that it was meant to be seen. In fact, the Bible tells us it was a great altar. And I, I believe that that means that they actually built it bigger than the actual altar. So Moses had been commanded to build an altar, to build a tabernacle. At this time, it was in Shiloh. And what they basically did was they built a replica of the altar that Moses built, but they built it bigger. They built it greater, and it was meant to be seen. It was a great altar to see too. Now, up to this point, I've been kind of giving you the story, building up the story so you understand, because what happens in verse 11 is we begin this conflict between the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, before we uh, get into the conflict, let me just read to you an, an excerpt here from the seven habits of highly effective people, because we're talking about seeking to understand then to be understood. And when we, when, when we say that, what we're really talking about is empathetic listening. Now, let me just read to you a little excerpt here, and then we'll get back to the story. Uh, in the book, he says this, when I say empathetic listening, I mean listening with intent to understand. I mean seeking first to understand, to really understand. It's an entirely different paradigm. Empathetic listening gets inside another person's frame of reference. You look out through it, you see the world the way they see the world, you understand their paradigm, you understand how they feel. Empathy is not sympathy. 
Sympathy is a form of agreement, a form of judgment. It is sometimes the more appropriate emotion and response. But people often feed on sympathy. It makes them dependent. The the essence of empathetic listening is not that you agree with someone. It's that you fully, deeply understand that person emotionally as well as intellectually. And I want you to notice as we jump into this conflict between these 12 tribes, I'm going to give you six thoughts, and I'd like you to write them down. If you've got a place to jot down six thoughts to help you with your communication, six thoughts to help you to seek to understand, then to be understood. And I'll give you uh, uh, point number one here in a second. But look at verse number 11, Joshua 22 and verse 11. The children of Israel, the two and a half tribes have now gone back home. They've crossed the Jordan River. And before they actually went home to see their families, they stopped at the border and they built an altar to see to. Notice the conflict. Look at verse 11. And the children of Israel heard say. And if you don't mind writing your Bible, I'd like you to underline those words, heard say. Because the, that phrase, heard say, is the present tense of a term that we often use, and it is this, hearsay. What they heard was hearsay. The children of Israel heard say, behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So you have 12 tribes of Israel. Two and a half of them are on one side, and then you've got the rest of the tribes on the other side. And the rest of the tribes, the children of Israel, heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an an altar over against the land of Canaan in the border of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh. Notice, why did they gather? To go up to war against them. Here's point number one. I'd like you to write this down. In order to seek first to understand, then to be understood, we must, number one, discipline ourselves to not react to hearsay. These people heard say, they heard a rumor, they heard that the two and a half tribes had done something, and they'd done something that they did not understand. They had built an altar on the other side. And instead of seeking to understand, instead of looking into the matter, the Bible tells us, look down at verse number 12, that the children of Israel, uh, and when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. I mean, they're getting ready to engage in civil war against their brothers and sisters, the same brothers and sisters that have just helped them to conquer the land. They're getting ready to go to war based on hearsay. But you know what? In our relationships, we often do the same thing. In our relationships, we're often ready to go to war with someone. We're often ready to walk away from a friendship. We're often ready to go to war with someone emotionally, uh, uh, whether it's a friend or a spouse or a co-worker. You know, and it's, and it's based off something we heard say. It's based off something that hasn't even been uh, verified yet. It's based on something that we, uh, we're not even sure if it's true, but we assume that it's true. We assume, you know, and oftentimes when it comes to relationships, and as a pastor, you know, for the last 10 years, my wife and I have done a lot of counseling and helping people and trying to help people with relationships. You know what I've learned is that oftentimes whenever there is problems in relationships, it's always based off of assumptions, Oh, this person doesn't like me, or this sister doesn't like me, or this, these people are talking about me. It's like, well, how do you know that? Well, I just feel like they are. 
Well, what makes you feel? Well, I just feel like, you know, they're giving me the cold shoulder. They're giving, and you know, the funny thing is that I've, I've been in the middle of these uh, uh, situations enough times to realize that you go to one party and they're like, well, they're giving me the silent treatment, so they must hate me. And then you go to the other party and, and of course, you never tell anybody, hey, I'm talking to this person, I'm talking to that person because I'm a pastor. I'm not going to tell people there's a business. You go to the other party and they're like, well, no, they're giving me the cold shoulder and they're treating me. And it's like, man, you guys are making all these decisions based off assumptions and no one's actually taking the time to verify anything. You know, you need to discipline yourself to not react to hearsay, to not react to things that you're not even sure if they're real or not, that you're not really sure if they've actually happened or not, that you're not even sure if that person actually feels that way. Hey, don't make decisions and don't go to war with someone and definitely don't walk away from a relationship based off of the fact that I think that they may. Why don't you take the time to actually seek to understand? Why don't you take the time to actually try to go to that person and communicate with that person? And by the way, I I would just say this because I've seen this done in the wrong way so many times. Let me just give you some advice. Whenever you're going to someone, whenever you're going to someone based off hearsay, you should make it clear that it's hearsay. I, I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have had somebody walk up to us and say, well, you said X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, how do you know we said that? Well, that's what I heard. That's the hearsay. And it's like, well, did you verify that? Did you actually look into it? You know, well, so-and-so said, well, let's bring so-and-so here. You know, it's funny. Whenever you decide, let's bring so-and-so here, all of a sudden, well, actually, what they actually said was that maybe I misunderstood and maybe, look, you got to be careful. If you heard something, maybe you should go to someone humbly and say, hey, you know, I'm not saying this is true, but I, I heard this, and I don't think, it doesn't sound like you. I just want to verify. You see how that's different than, well, you said. Well, how do you know I said? Well, I, it's hearsay. That's what I heard say. Well, let's get all the people together. Let, let's put everything on the table. Let's actually figure out, is this what actually happened? Look, we must discipline ourselves not to react to hearsay. Sometimes you have people getting ready to quit the church based on hearsay, uh, based on things that never were actually said based on things that never actually happened. So in order to seek first to understand, then to be understood, we must discipline ourselves to not react to hearsay. Number two, notice verse number 12. Let me, let me give you the, the story. In verse 12, the Bible says this, And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. And the children of Israel sent unto the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, into the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten princes. You remember, Phinehas was the one who actually stopped the plague that God had sent upon the children of Israel. Phinehas is a good guy, but Phinehas is going to get a little ahead of himself here in the story. Notice verse 14. And with him ten princes of each uh, chief house, a prince throughout all the tribes of Israel, and each one was in head of the house of, the, of their fathers among the thousands of Israel. Notice verse 15. And they came unto the children of Reuben, and to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, unto the land of Gideon. And they spake with them, saying... Notice how they speak. They're not asking questions. They're just making assumptions. Notice verse uh, number 16. Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord... What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel? I mean, they're not saying, hey, we heard something and we are here to verify. 
We heard something, and we want to get your side of the story. We heard something, and we want to seek to understand. No, they've already got all the facts. They already know everything. They've already got it all figured out, and they're coming in just guns a-blazing. What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this people from following the Lord, and that ye have builded you an altar that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? I mean, they are just accusing them of rebelling against God because of the fact that they built this altar. See, I said, in order to seek to first understand, you must discipline. We must discipline ourselves, not to react to hearsay, but in order to seek to understand, then to be understood, number two, we must deal with the problem without assigning motives. You know that there are often conflicts? You know that there are often misunderstandings? You know that sometimes people do things and you're not exactly sure why they did that? You know, here the ten tribes on the one side of Jordan, all they know is this. The two and a half tribes built an altar on the other side. Well, we already have an altar in Shiloh. Yeah, I I know. Well, why would they do that? Well, they must be rebelling against God. Well, wait a minute. We need to make sure that when we are dealing with conflict, that we don't assign motives. Because here's the truth. You're not God. I'm not God. The truth is this, that... I can make assumptions and I might be able to connect dots and say, well, here's what it looks like. Oftentimes when I talk to people, I try to. I do my best to not accuse people. I might take somebody aside and say, hey, let me tell you, here's one fact that's been verified. That's not hearsay. Here's another fact that's been verified. That's not hearsay. Here's a third fact that's been verified. That's not hearsay. And when I look at all of these, this is what it looks like to me. But I want to get your thoughts on it. Is there something I'm missing here? Because it looks like you're getting backslidden. It looks like you are uh, trying to hurt the church. It looks like you are gossiping. But I don't want to assume that I know what you're doing. I want to seek first to understand. See, when we go to people with just the facts and say, Hey, here's, here's the truth. Here's what's happening. Help me understand it. It'll help us to resolve conflicts where there are no conflicts. And honestly, when there is a conflict, you can still come out just being the bigger person by not just coming in, I know you're trying to split the church. Well, I might think you're trying to split the church, but I'm not going to come out like that at first. I'm going to say, hey, help me understand this. You said X, Y, and Z here. You criticized my wife here. You criticized our soul winning ministry here. You criticized this decision here. You know, I'm looking at all these things, and when I put it all together, here's what it looks like. Am I missing something? We need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to simply react to hearsay. We need to be careful. We need to be careful that we do not assign motives to actions. Because the truth is this, I don't know everybody's heart. You don't know everybody's heart. Somebody might have done something and you're looking at it from the other side and thinking, I wonder why they did that. I wonder why they built that altar. I wonder why they would do that. It must be because we must deal with problems without assigning motives. Notice verse 17. Notice what Phineas says. He says, is the iniquity of peer too little for us? Now he's referring back to the fact that the children of Israel had already rebelled against God and that God had sent a great judgment and thousands of people had died. And he's saying, is the iniquity of peer too little for us, for which we are not cleansed unto this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? 
but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it will be, seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. Here's what Phineas is saying. Phineas is saying, is saying this. Look, we've already rebelled against God, and it didn't work out well for us. The, God sent these plagues. Thousands of people have, uh, have died, and now you're rebelling, and God's going to do the same thing. Notice verse 9. Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord. I love verse 19 because in verse 19, Phineas gets ultra-spiritual. He says, well, look, if, if, if maybe it was a mistake for you to go to the other side of Jordan. If the land of your possession be unclean, then pass you over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. You know, how kind of you, Phineas. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us, in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Notice verse 20. He brings up another time when the children of Israel were punished for rebellion. He says, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel, and that man perished not alone in his iniquity. Phineas brings up these two examples with Peor and with Achan, where the children of Israel really truly did rebel against God, and where God truly was upset with the children of Israel, and where God brought judgment upon them. He brings these things up. Here's point number three. In order for you to seek first to understand, then to be understood, we must not impose our prior experiences unto the current conflicts. Look, when it comes to your kids, just because one of your kids was rebellious doesn't mean that you should impose that upon now every kid that does something wrong. They're all rebelling. As a pastor, I've had to learn that just because we've had issues with certain people trying to hurt our ministry building altars to try to hurt our ministry doesn't mean that everybody builds an altar trying to hurt your ministry. When it comes to conflict, we need to be careful that we do not impose our prior experiences unto current conflicts. We need to be careful. See, seeking to understand others means that we try to see it from their perspective. We try to see it, understand why they're doing what they're doing. And it means that we don't just make assumptions about their motives. And it means that we don't impose our prior experiences on current conflicts. Because, you know, there was that matter with Peor. There was that matter with Balaam, who uh, taught the children of Israel. uh, uh, He set a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice them to idols, and to commit fornication. That really did happen. There was that issue with Achan, where he stole the accursed thing, and God's judgment came upon the entire congregation. Those things really did happen. But just because they happened in other instances doesn't mean that's what's happening in this instance. So when it comes to seeking first to understand... And then to be understood, we must be careful. In fact, we must discipline ourselves to not react to hearsay. Don't assume that just because someone said something, just because you heard something, that that's what actually happened. In fact, I always assume, and this ministry has taught me this, and I would encourage you, be very careful. You know, always realize that there's always another side to the story. Oftentimes people tell me something, And they'll tell me, this is what happened, and then I said this, and they said that, and then this thing, and that thing, and I get so angry, and I get so upset, and I think, I can't believe! Then you bring that person in, you know, is this what happened? And then you hear their side of the story, and it's like, oh, whoa. Well, that was completely different. Now now I'm siding with you against this person. Here's what I've learned about stories, is that there's what he says, 
There's what she says, and then somewhere in the middle is the truth. There's what they said, there's what we say, and honestly, somewhere in the middle is the truth. And the truth is this, that we need to be careful. We need to be careful when dealing with conflict, that we, don't, we discipline ourselves not to react to hearsay, that we deal with the problem without assigning motives. Problems need to be dealt with. Questions may need to be asked, but be careful about assigning motives. That we must impose our that we must we must be careful not to impose our prior experiences onto our current conflicts. I want you to notice in verse twenty one begins the clarification of the action. Now the two and a half tribes of Israel they begin to speak and to give their side of the story. I want you to notice what they said, verse twenty one. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth. And Israel he shall know, if it is in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, look, God knows the truth, and we're going to come back to that here in a minute. But they said, look, if it's in rebellion, look at the last part of verse 22. If it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, Save us not this day. They're saying, if you're right, you're making some assumptions here, but if you're right about the assumptions you're making, if we built this altar in rebellion against the Lord, then kill us. But notice what they said in verse 23. It said that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offerings or meat offerings, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. They said, look, if, if you're right about what we're doing, then, then you go ahead and save us not this day. Let the Lord himself require it. Notice verse 24. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing. <laughs> Here's what they're saying. They're saying, there may be something you didn't think about. There may be something that you haven't seen from your perspective. There may be because you're looking at the situation solely from your perspective, and your perspective is this. We are the ten tribes of Israel. We are on the uh, east side uh, uh, of Jordan. We've got Shiloh, and we've got the tabernacle that Moses gave us, and there's no reason that we can think of as to why we would justify building another altar on the other side. So they must be rebelling. And here's what they said in verse 24. They said, and if we have not rather done it for this thing, saying, in time to come, your children might speak unto our children, saying, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made the Jordan a border between us and you, ye children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, We actually built the altar. We built this altar. Remember this gray altar to see to? We're not trying to hide it from you. We want you to be able to see it. And they said the reason, if you want to know, why we did this is because there is a natural divide between our land and your land. It's called the Jordan River. And as we came across the Jordan River, after helping you conquer the land, we had this fear that in generations to come, your children would say to our children, what have you to do with us? Are you even really part of the children of Israel? 
You're on the other side of Jordan. And we wanted to build an altar similar to the one on your side that your children could see, that our children could see, that would tell everybody, hey, we may be divided by a river, but we are one nation. We are the nation of Israel. We are the children of God. Notice verse 25. For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, you children of Reuben and children of Gad, have you no part in the Lord? They said, we were afraid that your children would say to our children, ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Here's point number four. In order to seek first to understand, then to be understood, we must realize that others may have different situations that call for different solutions. We must realize that others may have different situations than our situations, which may call for different solutions. Here's here's the truth. The truth is this. There may not ever be a reason for the ten tribes of Israel to have to build an altar to see to. But just because your situation doesn't call for that solution, doesn't mean that someone else may not have a different situation that calls for a different solution. Oftentimes, conflict happens. In fact, uh, you know, during the coronavirus, one thing I tried to emphasize to people is the fact that, look, we all live in different states, we live in different Areas, we have different things and different situations going on, going on. And I'm going to be careful about judging what somebody else does somewhere else because I may not be, I may not be dealing with the situation they're dealing with. And they're not dealing with the situation that I'm dealing with. So before I start making assumptions and before I start judging their actions and before I start thinking, well, they're doing this and they're doing that, hey, you know, why don't we just realize that Different people may have different situations that call for different solutions. You may never have a reason to build an altar to see to, but there's other tribes in different places that may. We just need to realize that not everybody has the same solutions for the same problems. In fact, not everybody has the same problems. So therefore, we may all have different solutions. Notice verse 26. Therefore, we said... Let us now prepare and build us an altar. Notice what they said. Not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice. They said, we never built an altar that we intended to sacrifice on. (laughs) They said, we never built an altar that we were going to go get our own priests and go get our own sacrifices. They, They said, therefore, we said, let us now prepare and build us an altar, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice. Well, then why? Why would you do it? Look at verse 7. But that it, the it there is referring to the altar, that it may be a witness between us and you and our generation after us, that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore said we, that it shall be, when they shall say to us to, and to our generations time to come, that we may say again, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord. Here's point number five. In order to seek first to understand, then to be understood, we must learn to communicate when our actions may be misunderstood. We must learn to communicate 
when our actions may be misunderstood. Up to this point, we've been kind of picking on the ten tribes of Israel for basing their reaction off of hearsay, for making assumptions as to the motives, for not realizing that different solutions, different situations may call for different solutions. But let me just for a minute kind of pick on the two and a half tribes of Israel. You say, the two and a half tribes of Israel are, 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 are uh, innocent here. And I do believe they're innocent in the sense that they didn't do anything wrong. But you know what? Just because you don't do something wrong doesn't mean you don't do it the right way. And here, it would have been wise of them to realize, hey, maybe when we build this altar to see to, there's going to be some questions on the other side. Maybe we should send somebody over there and explain to them, hey guys, we're building an altar, but don't worry, we're not sacrificing on it. We're not developing our own Levitical priesthood over there. We're just building this altar so that people will see it and know that we're with you guys. See, we need to learn to communicate when our actions may be misunderstood. When we're making decisions, when we're doing things that others may not understand what we're doing, then we need to take the effort to communicate. One of the things I try to teach our staff guys, and if you ask our staff guys, you will can attest to this truth. I, I try to teach them in ministry we must over-communicate. In ministry we must over-communicate. In ministry, we must do our best to make sure that the message is being heard loud and clear. Because the truth is this, people are only half listening to us anyway. We as preachers like to think that people are just hanging on our every word. You know, that you're just watching this live stream right now and you're just just infatuated with the screen. You're like, this is amazing! And you're just writing everything down. But the truth is, most of you have half been listening. So we repeat ourselves. So we reveal So we preach the same sermons and the same concepts over and over and over and over again because the truth is this, most people have not been taught to listen and most people are only half listening and we do ourselves favors. The two and a half tribes of Israel would have done themselves a favor if they would have just over communicated a little bit. If they would have taken the time to send a message to the other side saying, hey, we're building an altar. You might have some questions about it. Let me explain. Let me explain what we're doing. Let us explain why we're doing it. A whole conflict may have been avoided if we learn to communicate when our actions may be misunderstood. Notice verse number 29. They said, God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build the altar to burnt offerings for meat offerings or for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before the tabernacle and when Phineas the priest and the prince of the congregation and heads of the thousands of Israel which were with him heard the words of the children of Reuben and the children uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and the children of Gad had said and I'm sorry part of my thing got cut off here let me make sure I'm not reading the wrong thing Joshua 22 and verse number 30 When the children of Israel and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spake, notice, it pleased them. When they got the other side of the story, they said, oh, well, that makes sense. Oh, well, I would have never thought of that. Oh, that's why you built the altar. Let me give you one more thought and we'll finish up. Go back to verse 21. And let me just say this. Sometimes, When there's conflict, you might take the time to verify the hearsay. You might have the wisdom to not walk into a meeting 
accusing someone of something that you're not even sure if it actually happened. But you'll go into the meeting saying, hey, I'm not assigning motives to what you're doing. I just heard this and I want to talk to you about it openly. You might take the time to seek to understand. You might take the time to try to resolve a conflict. You might get all the information you need. Sometimes in conflict, you get all the information you need from the other side. They get all the information they need from this side. We put it all out on the table, and we walk away saying, I still don't agree. I still think you were wrong. I still think you shouldn't have done that. Not every conflict can be resolved. So what do you do? I want you to notice how they began. And I love this. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Joshua 22, verse 21. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth. In Israel, he shall know if it, is in, if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord. Here's point number six. In order to first seek to understand, then to be understood, we must commit ourselves to what God knows and not what others think. See, sometimes in life, sometimes in life you're going to make decisions. As a pastor, I've learned this. As a pastor's wife, my wife has learned this. Sometimes we're going to make decisions and we're going to do our best to communicate, to over-communicate. I remember when we first, the first time we shut down uh, Verity Baptist Church. And we began to reopen. And I realized that there was going to be a lot of questions. And, you know, we, we, you have this whole spectrum of people. You have uh, some people who are, are on the spectrum of this coronavirus is the worst thing that could ever happen. It's going to kill us all. And you've got people on the other spectrum that say it's made up and, you know, no one's actually going to ever get sick. And you'll have this whole spectrum of people, and it's all in between in a church. So we take our time. And I mean, uh, you know, you want to talk about over-communicate. I mean, I held a meeting with the men of the church and explained to them, you know, what was happening and what we were doing and gave them. And then I held a meeting with the ladies who didn't have husbands who went there. I held another meeting with anyone who missed both of those meetings. Uh, we sent out emails. We sent out text messages. But you know, we're, we're pretty organized around here. And I, I've got lists and I'm checking off and I'm saying, okay, this person was at this meeting and this person was at that meeting and this person, you know, and I'm looking at some individuals and thinking to myself, man, this person didn't come to any of the meetings. We don't have their email. They don't have any, they don't know what's happening. And then those are the people that you get the questions from and you get the accusations from. And it's like, man, we've done everything in our power to try to make sure you know what's happening. But sometimes you can do everything you can and people just don't get the message. They don't take the time. They don't take the initiative to show up to the meetings you've set up. They don't take the initiative to give you the email you need to get them the information they need. They don't take the initiative and then they judge you. You say, well, what do you do, pastor? You know what? You walk away from those situations saying, God knoweth. God knows I've tried. God knows I've done everything in my power to try to get them the information and give them the opportunity to ask the questions. And sometimes you do everything you can and people walk away saying, you've done the wrong, you made the wrong choice. You did the wrong thing. And you say, what do you do with that? You say, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth. Sometimes we have to commit ourselves to what God knows and what others, and not worry about what others think. Because sometimes people are just actually not interested in getting your side of the story. 
Sometimes people are actually just not interested in trying to understand you. So sometimes you just have to walk away saying, well, God knows. God knows my heart. God knows my motives. God knows that I've tried to get the information to people, and I've tried to give them opportunities to get the information, to ask the questions. God knoweth. And they said, Israel, he shall know. I like how they said, they said, you know what? God knows our hearts. And if you don't listen to us, eventually you'll know that our hearts were right, that it was not in rebellion, that it was not in transgression. There is so much conflict that happens in life, I believe, because of lack of communication. I'm going to read to you just one last thing. We've got to finish up here. I'll read to you one last excerpt here from, from the book. And I just want to answer this question or kind of give this idea just as we conclude tonight, and it's this. People want to be understood, and people want to understand you. You just need to take the effort. You need to be proactive. You need to put in the initiative to give them. Most people, I should say, want to understand you and want to be understood by you. But you know, the best way to get someone to want to understand you is for you to first seek to understand them. Let me read to you from this book and we'll finish up. He says this, When people are really hurting and you really listen with a pure desire to understand, you'll be amazed how fast they will open up. They want to open up. Children desperately want to open up even more to their parents than to their peers. And they will if they feel their parents will love them unconditionally and will be faithful to them afterwards and not judge or ridicule them. You know, the reason that people often don't open up to us is because we have these assumptions and judgments that we've already made. We've already judged and we already know why they did. We're not listening to understand. We're just waiting for our opportunity to respond. And that will make people shut down. That will make people close down. That will stop communication in its tracks. So effective Christians learn and they seek to understand first then to be understood. You say, how do we do that? Well, we do that by disciplining ourselves not to react to hearsay. We do that by dealing with problems without assigning motives. We do that by not imposing prior experiences onto current conflicts. We do that by realizing that others may have different situations that call for different solutions. We do that by learning to communicate and even over-communicate when our actions may be misunderstood by others, and we do that by committing to our, ourselves to what God knows and doing our best to communicate with others, but at the end of the day, not worrying about what others think when they don't want to hear your side of the story. We must seek first to understand, then to be understood. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this great story in the Bible, this great misunderstanding. And Lord, I pray you'd help us because I, I, I think there's, there's, there's lots of friendships that have been ended. There's relationships with 
children and adult children. There's marriages that have ended. People have quit jobs and quit churches over misunderstandings that if one or both parties would have just been mature enough to try to seek to understand, they may have resolved them. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be people who seek first to understand, then to to be understood. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.